You are entitled to your opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. I'm not running against crooked Hillary Clinton. I'm running against the crooked media. Welcome to Special Relationship, a podcast from Mike and The Economist. I'm Celeste Katz from Mike. And I'm John Priddo from The Economist. This week, we're talking about the role of the media in this election. Reporting is perhaps not the most esteemed profession in the world, especially during an election season. Journalists have been held in about the same regard as lawyers and undertakers. But that's all in a day's work. As John Steinbeck once wrote, a good writer is the watchdog of society. His job is to satirize its silliness, to attack its injustices, to stigmatize its faults. And this is the reason that in America, neither society or government is very fond of writers. In this episode, we're going to be talking to two newspaper editors from opposite sides of the Atlantic, who, it turns out, are facing some pretty similar problems when it comes to covering politics in their home countries in 2016. Joining us now is Marty Barron, the executive editor of The Washington Post. He has led his newspaper to numerous Pulitzer Prizes, as was the case when he ran the Boston Globe. Marty, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're here with you at the Carnegie Corporation in New York, where you've been discussing some studies by the Harvard Kennedy School's Shorenstein Center of how the media, quote unquote, has handled this election. But before we even get to that, I want to ask you something very broadly, which is, how much does reporting on this election really matter? The, the Post is doing outstanding work on Donald Trump, the, the recent stories about his uh, charitable contributions or, or lack thereof. Uh, there's a lot of information generally out there for voters, but do they want it? Uh, well, I do think that voters want the information, whether they always process it and, and uh, consider it when they're casting their vote is another matter. They have their own, their own priorities. Uh, but we have a moral obligation, uh, and that is uh, front and center in, in the work that we do. Uh, we have to tell people what the facts are. We have to tell people what the truth is as best we can ascertain it. Uh, we have to investigate both candidates uh, because they aspire to hold the most powerful uh, position and the most powerful country on earth. And uh, this is what we, we do. And I do think that ultimately it, it matters. Now, p- when it comes down, down to voting, uh, people decide what they think is important and how much they want to weigh different facts. Uh, but we need to at least put the facts in front of them. There's been a lot of talk about post-truth politics in this election cycle, post-fact politics. You saw in the first debate Donald Trump you know, asserting he hadn't said various things that the public record says that he did in fact say. Do you think that's overdone? Is it something new or is it just something we're more aware of now that's, that's always been around? No, I think it's a, it's a major concern today in the media environment. I mean, we... Um, we have a situation where people are drawn to uh, sources of news and information uh, that affirm their pre-existing point of view. Uh, that has been a trend for quite some time. Uh, and there's some concern about that because that means that people won't be exposed to other points of view. Uh, but I think there's something even more worrisome, and that is that uh, some uh, so-called sources of news and information are actually putting out uh, conspiracy theories that are entirely false, uh, putting out so-called information that is, uh, that, those, that is false. These are lies. Uh, and we see it all over the place. I mean, number one on the list is that the president uh, was not born in the United States. Uh, that is false. Uh, there was 
never any evidence that he was born anywhere else, and yet there's still, even today, probably 25% of the American population that believes that, or that believes he's a Muslim, that he's not a Christian, or that believes that the Jade Helm military exercise uh, last year was an effort by the Obama administration to engineer a military takeover of the United States and suspend civil liberties. There's even a fairly substantial portion of the population who now believes this idea propagated by um, someone who runs an internet site and has a prominent talk radio show that many of the mass shootings uh, never took place, that they were hoaxes, uh, that they were choreographed by the administration in order to increase the chances of gun control or gun confiscation. And that's concerning because in this society, you know, we... um, We may disagree on the interpretation, we may disagree on the analysis, we may disagree on the prescription for how to solve a problem, but traditionally we've agreed on the baseline set of facts, and now we don't. Uh, You know, Daniel, the late Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan of New York uh, used to say, you're entitled to your own opinions, but you're not entitled to your own facts. Now people believe they are entitled to their own facts. You bring up Uh, conspiracy theories. And I was thinking back to something you've discussed about how Donald Trump has suggested that the Washington Post or the owner of the Washington Post has an issue with him and that there will be retribution and, and this sort of thing. And this seems to be sort of an effective tactic for Trump. People like it. I've been at rallies where he points to the press and hundreds of people turn around, look at you like, you know, you're something they scraped off the bottom of their shoe. And I don't mean to sound hokey, but I thought we were the good guys. So why is this working so well for him? Uh, Well, look, I mean, he's called us the lowest form of humanity. Uh, In fact, he went beyond that. He actually said we're the lowest form of life. Uh, So we can't get any lower in his estimation and perhaps the estimation of some people who support him. Um, Look, uh, you know, I'm concerned about that because uh, there's always been a tense relationship between the press and candidates, uh, regardless of what office they're running for. There's a tense relationship even today between the press and the president. Uh, and that's uh, standard, I think, standard in any in any election. But this is the first time that I can recall where hostility toward the press has been made a centerpiece of a major party nominee's uh, campaign. And uh, I'm concerned about that, but I'm also concerned about what it means for uh, if he becomes president. I expect that there will be a difficult relationship between the press and Hillary Clinton if she is uh, if she becomes president. There's never there hasn't been a warm relationship there for quite some time. There is not today, uh, and she's very wary of the press, very suspicious, uh, avoids the press at, at, uh, on most occasions. Uh, but it's a different order of uh, of being when it comes to uh, Donald Trump, and he's been exceptionally hostile, and he. He has threatened retribution, particularly against the the Washington Post. He's accused our owner of choreographing this coverage of him because he supposedly fears an antitrust suit or because he's worried about a tax case being brought against Amazon, things like that, all of which is complete nonsense. He hasn't choreographed any coverage. He hasn't gotten involved in coverage at all. Um, But it is concerning. Uh, We have democratic norms in this this, uh, country, uh, and it is concerning when someone who aspires to be president says he may use his office to exact uh, revenge on a media outlet uh, simply because of the way that it covered him when he was running for office. Marty, let's imagine that we do have a Trump administration next year. Trump wins in November. And then imagine that a paper of record like yours gets hold of a huge story, you know, the kind of story that might in a previous era have brought down an administration. When that story is published, would it be widely sort of believed enough to have the effect that previous kind of huge scoops have had, you know, thinking about Watergate or or something? Or does the fragmented 
you know, media environment we're in, the sort of post-truth stuff where people believe what they want to believe, mean that actually an administration could kind of ride out any kind of um, scandal of, of that nature by just saying, oh, no, it's not true. Well, I think we'll have to wait and see. Uh, so uh, the same applies not just in a... Uh, we talked about a Trump administration, but it could apply in a, in a Clinton administration as well. I think we'll just have to see how that works out. Obviously, we have the obligation to do our reporting in a rigorous fashion uh, to present evidence. Uh, it could be documentary evidence. It could be uh, interviews of one type or another. It could be combination. It could be a whole range of things. And so if we present it in a, um, in a rigorous way and in a convincing way, uh, I would expect that it would resonate with a, perhaps a majority of the American public. There will always be, I suspect, a segment of the American public uh, that will simply be dismissive uh, if their favored politician says it's not true. When you're talking about uh, the adversarial relationship between the candidates and the press or the president and the press, in a way, I think that's that's kind of healthy. But I wanted to ask you about something that you've said in the past. I'm just going to read a little bit of it uh, for our listeners, and maybe you can talk about how that plays into this election. Uh, you said, quote, the greatest threat to a vigorous press comes from ourselves. The press is routinely disparaged and demonized. That leaves many news organizations fearful, fearful that we will be accused of bias or that we will lose customers or that we will offend someone. Should we be worried about ourselves in that way? I, I think we should be worried about ourselves. I do think that, uh, you know, it, it's only natural for people who work in the press to be sensitive to criticism, uh, concerned about the financial condition of our industry, uh, things like that. And I do think sometimes people hold back uh, because they fear that we'll just be criticized, uh, that maybe advertisers will uh, discontinue advertising, that maybe subscribers who we desperately need uh, will uh, cancel their subscriptions. And so they're hesitant to report exactly what they know. Uh, that they know from rigorous reporting that they've actually done. and But I do think that we have an obligation to tell people what we know. You know, there's a lot of talk uh, about fairness of the press and things like that, and I certainly believe in that. I think we should be fair, honest, accurate, honorable in everything that we, in everything that we do and the reporting we do, and we should listen to everybody and what they have to say and what evidence they have, they have to produce. But at the end of the day, we, we look at all of the information and we arrive at a, some sort of conclusion. And I think that we also need to be fair to the public. Uh, and being fair to the public I means, means to me telling them what we've actually found uh, and telling it to them straight and, uh, and telling the truth. And uh, I do think that there's some hesitation in certain corners of uh, the news media to do that for fear of the consequences. Fearlessness has always been important in journalism, the telling truth to power thing. It seems to me that now, again, as part of the you know, changes, technological changes that have uh, happened in the media that you talked about in that speech in California that Celeste just read from. One of the things that people are a bit afraid of is the, you know, is the public, in the sense that you publish something and immediately, whatever you said, you will be accused by a large number of people as a, as a writer of political bias, of being in the, you know, can for one side or the other, you know, potentially of being corrupt. Do you think that has an uh, effect of making reporters 
potentially more, more timid? Or do you tell your reporters, listen, you just have to be really thick-skinned about this? Uh, well, it doesn't make our reporters at the Washington Post uh, more hesitant, uh, more reticent about reporting. Uh, I think we've demonstrated that uh, we're going to do the reporting necessary. We'll do it rigorously. We'll do it fairly. Uh, we'll do it honestly and honorably. Uh, but uh, once we've done it, we're going to tell people what we found and not masquerade it, not disguise it. I do worry about that there are in certain corners of the news media that that does, in fact, happen. Uh, I don't actually worry about that myself. Uh, I think that the public, for the most part, uh, expects, or at least should expect, that we do our jobs, uh, we tell people what we found, and uh, the chips will fall wherever they fall. On that topic, do you think that this election, which has been frankly strange, I think this is, this is my fourth and I've never seen anything quite like it, do you think that what is happening this year will change the way we cover campaigns and the presidency? going forward? Uh, I think to some degree it will, and I think you're already seeing that take place. I think people, uh, news organizations, are much more willing to just uh, say it the way they find it. Uh, They're using words like lies and falsehoods and things like that that were not customary in our coverage in the past. Uh, When we see somebody making a a misstatement uh, and it appears to be deliberate, uh, people are not really hesitant these days to call it a falsehood or a lie. Uh, And uh, I think that that is a qualitative change in the tenor of the coverage. And it grows out, it arises out of a frustration, I think, among the press uh, that anything less than doing that would not be honest, uh, would, would, would not accurately describe what's, what's occurring and would not be honest with readers. Do you ever get frustrated? Do I ever get frustrated? Oh, I have all sorts of frustrations. Yes, of course. Um, Am I frustrated, but frustrated about what exactly? About publishing stories that say that somebody is, has lied or deceived or refuses to come across with basic information or won't have a press conference for an endless number of days. And you put it out there and people say, eh. Yeah, well, you know, uh, sure, you always want your, your work to have uh, the greatest possible impact. Uh, but I do think that our work has impact, uh, not with everybody. Uh, but with substantial portions of the population, substantial segments of the population. Is it frustrating when it doesn't have the impact that you would expect it to, that uh, people are dismissive about it, let's say because they think that uh, we're part of some sort of conspiracy or because we're only publishing out of bias? Sure, that can be, that can be very frustrating. Do I wish that there were more confidence in uh, the American press? Absolutely. Uh, but that's not something that I can really control. Uh, so... I view, uh, I think about it this way, and that is we just need to do our jobs. We just need to do our jobs and keep doing it every day, and I'm not going to let those, uh, those uh, frustrations uh, overwhelm me. We're just going to keep doing our jobs. This is going to sound really hokey, but also I think the idea that something is only valuable if it has huge impact is not correct, right? There's an intrinsic value to truth-seeking even if only five people see it. Uh, Well, I agree with that. I mean, I think we have a moral obligation. Uh, But uh, if you're going to tell the truth, you would like people to actually recognize that that's the truth and you would like it to have some sort of impact. Uh, So, but I agree with you. We ultimately, we have to fall back on our moral obligation to tell the truth. Marty Barron is the executive editor of The Washington Post. Marty, thank you so much. Thank you.
Joining us now is Julian Reichelt, editor-in-chief of Built Digital, which is the online arm of Europe's biggest selling newspaper. Julian, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for being with you. Can I ask, how does this election look from Germany? Are Germans interested, uh, more interested than usual? You know, have they, is it passing them by somewhat? What What's it look like from where you're sitting? Well, obviously, every US election is of highest interest uh, to the to the German audience because it, it has uh, such great effect on uh, what happens here in Europe and what happens here in Germany. This one um, is particularly interesting because of uh, the the two candidates, especially because of one candidate, of Donald Trump, who has become kind of a a feared person. If if we look back at the election eight years ago with Obama and how much um, Europe fell in love with him and wanted him to to win, Trump is pretty much, I guess you could call him the anti anti-Obama as much as people back then eight years ago wanted Obama to win they want uh, Trump to lose in this election and I would say they followed with a very similar passion this race. What do they think is going to happen if if Donald Trump wins the election? Well if you talk to people about what happens then you will hear all kinds of uh, doomsday scenarios um, the, the the biggest fear obviously is, is complete isolation between uh, Europe and the United States, because uh, Donald Trump has um, re- repeatedly g- given this isolationist uh, uh, approaches, where where he basically says that he wants to withdraw from the world, withdraw from NATO, withdraw from uh, different uh, treaties and and alliances, and and obviously, uh, especially Germans are very used to having a strong transatlantic partnership having strong ties with the United States so that is something people are um, are concerned about but that is more uh, on the moderate side of concern so to say in general with everything Trump has said so far and the way he has pictured himself people really have a, a deep fear that the world will basically explode with someone like Trump in in the White House now I, I don't know if that is a rational uh, a fear, but that certainly is is the sentiment that Trump really has um, the potential to uh, bring doom over the world. Julian, when you look at American politics, do you see commonalities with German politics? I mean, I know in German state elections recently, one of the sort of new trends, if you like, was the good results for Alternative for Germany, which is a party that in part seems to have drawn its support from some hostility to immigration and also to Syrian refugees. And, and, you know, you can draw a line between that and some elements of the support for Donald Trump. I mean, is that is that a fair comparison or actually are the differences so great that it's it's not really useful? No, that that is a, a very fair comparison. And I, th- I think that is very important to point out that with Germans being so in- incredibly critical of, of Trump and really fearing him and being kind of condescending towards the American electorate that they would even consider a candidate like like that. Um, I I feel that is a, a bit hypocritical because if we look at our elections, if we look at our regional elections, but also at polls for um, the federal election next year, we have the uh, AfD, the uh, Alternative for Deutschland, with which is uh, anti-immigrant, anti-refugee, pro-isolation, pro-Moscow. Um, so, so you know, many things we're seeing uh, with the Trump campaign. And if you add to that the positions of the radical party on the on, on the left wing of the political spectrum, Die Linke, which 
as it comes with radical parties in 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 you know some parts overlaps with the uh, right wing radical party if you combine the the votes and the percentage of those two you pretty much end up with numbers that trump is seeing uh, in the us so germans are very good at um, condemning americans for their electoral decisions and and they're very good at being condescending towards other countries uh, electoral decisions but if we look at our political landscape and combine our radical left and our radical right and the results they make and look at, at their positions which basically are you know what 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 trump stands for then we have the exact same phenomenon here on this side of the uh, atlantic so i i would say that's a very dangerous environment it's something we're, we're seeing in pretty much every free country in the western world and there is no reason for germans to be condescending about that but more to you know to work against it and and to work for for our institutions and and make clear why you know we, i believe we're better off with more moderate uh, uh, positions which are more towards the center of the political spectrum and not point fingers at, at others and and forget about the problems we have ourselves one of the things that we've seen in this election as Uh, Americans become more partisan and more divided is a lot of anger at the press. You know, if you write a critical story about Donald Trump, his supporters want to know why you're not going after Hillary Clinton and vice versa. And I'm just wondering, uh, do you notice the same thing in elections in Germany or in Europe? Or is there less sort of anger directly at the press for what is reported or not reported? We are seeing the exact same phenomenon here with anger at the press. I think in the U.S. it's it's basically you know talking about mainstream media here. The the word for um, the established uh, media brands is ha has become uh, a lügenpresse with the supporters of the of the radical f fractions, which means the lying press. And and I think that is that is one of the sentiments we are seeing in the U.S. but also here in Europe that is really driving this kind of movement. They are anti-press they are anti-institutions actually in many parts they are um, anti-facts it's, it's a counterfactual uh, movement they do not believe that there is something like facts which is something that is uh, being driven by social media it's uh, being driven by uh, what i believe is a very concerted uh, effort of uh, russian hybrid warfare and disinformation to basically declare war on that whole concept of facts, people that do not believe that there is something like the truth, that there is something like accountability, that there is something like true facts. And if you if you eradicate these concepts, all our societies are based on, well, then, you, then you're left with a society that doesn't really need the press because you know, who, who needs a press when, when facts do not uh, exist? And I think that is something we're seeing in the US election and it is something we're also seeing uh, here in Europe. And, and I would consider that probably the most dangerous trend of the the general election in the u.s but but certainly also the most dangerous trend uh, germany will be facing uh, with its uh, federal elections in 2017 can i just pick up on what you said about russian involvement in german politics julian when the dnc computer system was hacked and a lot of people with you know a lot of evidence pointed fingers at russian hackers There was some tendency to dismiss that by saying, oh, you know, you're being hysterical if you think that Russia is trying to meddle in American elections. You know, they couldn't really do that. I'd imagine that looks a bit different from, from Germany. Well, the truth is, I think analysts and experts are way more aware of that problem um, in the US than they are here in Europe. 
um, you know, Russia is close. Russia is close to Germany. There, there is something like his historic guilt being felt in Germany, which always um, prevents people from looking very critical and, in this case, very realistically at um, what what Russia is doing, and and that Russia has moved way beyond the partnership we saw a couple of years ago and into a new digital phase uh, of of uh, well a, a cold war if 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 you want to say use those those words and um, what the analysis here is is that it's it will be very difficult for russia to actually fake an election um, both in the us but also here here especially because it's um, being carried out on paper um, in the US, because the country and the voting system is just way too diverse, you have digital voting here, uh, you have voting on paper there, it will be very difficult to have a meaningful impact in faking uh, an election. But again, the uh, the Russian attack, uh, if you if you look at the, the DNC hack, if you look at uh, how they hacked into the... Um, the, the, the computer system of the, the German parliament, if you look at their propaganda campaign, the Russian concept is not to hack an election and to fake an election. It's to create doubt w within a, a meaningful part of the um, population that, those, that they can still trust those elections, that they can still trust the results, that those results are still uh, uh, legitimate. And I think if you look at the environment in the US and look at how many Bernie Sanders supporters now think that the 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 um, the primary vote was stolen from him after the DNC uh, uh, hacks? Then you will see that you know they are succeeding. And you know if you look on on social media, if you look at how people think about the the mainstream media in the U.S., if you people if you look at how people denounce us as Lügenpresse here in 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 Germany, then. Um, we unfortunately have to give them credit. They are succeeding with that. And I, th I think that is, you know, one of the main jobs the media has uh, for, for, for the months uh, uh, to come to through, through great work and, and great journalism and great transparency, show people that we are not, um, you know, that we're not biased, that we, we don't work on an agenda, that, um, uh, uh, that, that we're not being bankrolled or sponsored by some, you know, uh, dark conspiracy, but that, you know, we, we 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 may have our flaws, and you know, we may not be perfect, but we are the best system out there, and and we have an honest system, and something like facts do exist. So, given that people distrust the press so much, and this seems to be a common thing uh, in the United States and in Europe, what do you do to to explain to people that facts still matter, and that they should trust that they should still trust the mainstream press? How do you, how do you make peace with the public in that way? I guess. Well, I think the the biggest mistake again on both sides of the Atlantic we historically made was that we took our great reach, our great circulations, our great uh, viewer numbers for approval uh, from our audience, completely overlooking that we had something like a, we for for decades had something like a monopoly. Um, you know, it's the same here in, in, in Europe uh, as in the U.S., that a couple of families have controlled a lot of the uh, printing and, uh, and distribution. People had no way around us. And that led to a mentality within newsrooms and among journalists that, you know, we, we don't really have to engage with those people because we assumed, you know, if they, if they buy so many newspapers, they will approve. They, they like what we, what we do there. And we kind of forgot about them and completely missed that 
you know, there was on, on the fringes of our societies, there was something up, something was brewing, people who, you know, who distrust the system, people who have their suspicions, people who question if, um, you know, uh, uh, elections are not a conspiracy or if, you know, German newspapers uh, or, or media brands such as ours, such as Bild, you know, may be sponsored by the uh, the CIA, you know, um, paid, paid for by the CIA. That That is not something I'm, I'm making up. That is something we see every day in mass on social media. And, um, you know, they have created their own reality. It's... Um, It's counterfactual. It's uh, as with the, as is the beauty with every conspiracy theory. Every argument against that works to your to your favor. Um, so so it becomes kind of self proving. And I think journalists have not yet really found the way back to engaging with their readers, viewers, audience, and tell them uh, tell them about what's going on there. Show transparency. Show what we are doing. Show how we come to our effects and and be you know open to their criticism, even if it's annoying, even if we don't like their tone. Uh, th there is there is no way around that um, alternative reality that has established itself on social media. There is no ignoring it. Um, ignoring it is dangerous. Ignoring it will will lead to to victory for for. That kind of that kind of counter reality they they have built, and our uh, uh, you know in the interest of of self preservation mm -hmm. for for us and and our our system, um, I think we we have to engage with those people. Julian Reichelt of Built, thank you very much. Thanks, thanks a lot for having me. That's it for this week. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We were produced by Alan Habachak. Thanks, Alan. And thanks, everyone, so much for listening. If you want to help us out, you can do that by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. I'm Celeste Katz with Mike and at Celeste Katz NYC on Twitter. And I'm John Prudhoe at The Economist or at John Prudhoe on Twitter. See you next week. <laughs>